Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. And each week we get together and talk about the history of the modern heathen movement. And that could be anything from how American racism has influenced heathenry to the history of various organizations to tonight's topic, Ben, which is all about Vikings in America. All about the United States of America and its Viking founders and colonists, or possibly lack thereof. I keep trying to go with maybe something like, we're the Vikings in America, whoa, we're the Vikings in America, but it's really not that great. (laughs) Right. I was maybe a little older. I was thinking, you know, I like to pillage America, plunder the village America, West Side Story. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Which they're about to completely remake and reimagine next year. Hmm, okay. With an actual ethnically diverse cast that looks like New York City. Hmm, all right. I know. So street gangs of Uzbeks versus Tajiks or something? Just a... Not really, but... Oh, okay. So this is an interesting topic, and this ties back a little bit to some earlier episode we've done. Right. So you will find that some of these misconceptions were in things like our Steve McNallan episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, you might want to listen to that one too. Right. We have to take you back to a time before New York City was diverse. In fact, that was kind of the problem. And we take you back in time to 1837. Not quite far enough back for us to sing like... Hamilton, but right, close. right. I feel like I should be doing like I don't know that. What did Mike Myers keep doing in uh, Wayne's World? Okay, 1837, and there's a Danish scholar by the name of Carl Christian Raffen. Right, he's a translator of uh, the sagas, mostly into Danish. Very good scholar for the time, and he wrote a book in 1837. Published it called Antiquitates Americanae, which presents the texts of the two Vindland sagas. They're in Norse, he translates them into Danish, and he also translated them into Latin, which was still very much the language of scholars. That's a language that everybody could read. And he translated some other source documents as well. And Antiquitates Americanae was translated into English, or parts of it were, in 1841, by a scholar with an absolutely wonderful name, North Ludlow Beamish, which just sounds... That is a great name. Yeah, North Ludlow Beamish. It sounds kind of like maybe he was named after his address. You know, hey, where were you born? Oh, on the corner of North Ludlow and Beamish. Ah, I see. Anyway, this was published in 1841 as The Discovery of America by the Northmen, and it's the first English presentation of the Vinland sagas. Ben, what are the Vinland sagas? Well, you may ask, what are the Vinland sagas? They're the sagas that tell about Norsemen discovering Greenland, colonizing Greenland, which, by the way, actually was green at the time. I mean, most of it is an ice cap, but there is some green pasture in the coastal regions where the Norse folks settled, and it was a bit greener back then before a medieval cold snap called the Little Ice Age. 
And they start with Eric the Red, so-called because he killed people, uh, leading the colonization. And they're not entirely consistent with each other. One of them is Eric Saga Rauva, the saga of Eric the Red. And in this one, Eric's son, Leif, otherwise known as Leif Erikson, get it, discovers Vinland, which is North America. And a second expedition is led by a gent by the name of Thorfinn Karlsefni. Karlsefni means having the stuff of a man. Thorfinn man stuff, which sounds kind of weird. Yeah, that sounds like a a drag king name. Okay. Yeah, Thorfinn with the makings of a man. And Thorfinn establishes two settlements, one at a place called Straumfjord, stream fjord, their fjord of currents, and another one at a place called Hope. Hope is the word for the kind of pond that forms at the mouth of a river flowing into the ocean. You'll sometimes get a kind of a gravel bar building up that cuts off a uh, little stretch of shallow water. That's a hope. And here I was going to make a, a Bill Clinton reference with uh, you know from a place called Hope. Called Hope? Okay, I was actually thinking of the Vikings sailing along the coastline and looking for a place to anchor, and one of them saying, let's go to the Hope. Let's go to the Hope. Oh, baby, let's go to the Hope. Let's go to the Hope. Get it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. So I'm actually holding a book up to the microphone right now. Oh, I can see it. It's called Viking Clothing. All right. And it actually has some, uh, we have the Greenland Settlement. It actually is full of a lot of archaeological finds about the clothing, as well as construction techniques from this particular era. So if you are a fiber nerd like me, it's worth checking out. It was just funny that this was brought up and I had just been looking at it because I was trying to figure out a a, a fabric finishing technique from it. But uh, definitely an interesting book and they have a lot of contemporary fiber evidence from this time period where this saga would be set. Right. Yeah. There were bodies buried in permafrost and their clothing is incredibly well preserved. And it actually shows that they were keeping up fairly well with fashions on the European continent. They may have been very remote, but they still had connections with um, you know, what was going on in the outside world. Yes. So that's Eric Saga Rauha. Grindlendinger Saga, the story's a little bit different. It's not Leif Eriksson that's the first to see Vinland. It's a guy named Bjarni Herjolfsson who gets blown off course and accidentally sees this interesting land. There's several expeditions to it, including an attempt at settlement led by Thorfinn Karlsefni, you know, Thorfinn man stuff, and another one led by. Leif's sister, Freydis, Eric's daughter, which ends very badly because she kills a lot of people. So they're not entirely consistent with each other, but they both are fairly clear on people originally from Iceland sailing to some unknown land on the far side of the Atlantic. And if you look at a globe, it's relatively easy sailing because they're not cutting straight across the Atlantic. You can hop or hop from Norway to Orkney and Shetland to the Faroes 
to Iceland, to Greenland, to Helluland, which is probably Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, to Markland, which we think was Labrador, to Vinland, which is farther south, and never be more than, I think, a day or two sailing away from land. You can actually hop it relatively safely. I mean, it's still hellishly dangerous, but not as dangerous as it would be trying to cut across open ocean with the sailing techniques of the time. And also, this settlement was a major plot point on uh, the DC Comics TV show Legends of Tomorrow, where they go and uh, fight off a monster that has invaded, uh, I believe it was, I don't remember, they never say which settlement, but it was uh, Freydis' settlement that was actually the one that they were at. Hmm, okay. Fighting off basically the equivalent of in-world Elmo. Oh. As a giant monster. In-world Elmo? Yeah, it's basically this giant Muppet-type character that's very much like Elmo. It's uh, due to temporal rifts. They're time travelers. So due to temporal oh, okay. rifts and a whole bunch of other stuff, they end up fighting him at the Viking settlement. So uh, another one of those stories from the history that has popped over into pop culture. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the idea of a bunch of Vikings fighting Elmo. Okay, so picture a bunch of Vikings fighting, like, 20-foot Elmo. Okay. All right. Um, Bebo Hungry. Mm. The character's name is Bebo. But yes. Oh, let's see. So, once again, the sagas and mythology being mined by comic books for content. Okay. I'm still thinking of, you know, something <laughs> like, you know, this is the killing, la 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 la, Elmo's killing. Elmo loves water, he'll drink your blood. That's Elmo's killing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the thing was basically a, a tickle me Elmo, only a different color for intellectual property reasons. But yeah, so. Uh, Man. So. There is one more shout out I wanted to give. Troth member Thomas DeMayo actually published a novel called The Devourer of Gods, where the premise is that the Norsemen managed to settle permanently in North America and actually interbred and created a kind of mixed culture with uh, North American Algonquin people. And there's a lot of rather horrifying magic in there that's kind of a synthesis of Norse traditions like Save and... Native American traditions, and it's called The Devourer of Gods, and it's available on Amazon.com, and it's a pretty good read. Yes, and uh, Tom's a great guy. I've been enjoying working with him. Mm -hmm. So we go back to Mr. Rothen, mm -hmm. who seems to think that the landscapes that are described in these sagas are a like total match for New England in the United States. Right. He was identifying these places as being around about where Massachusetts is, looking at, I think, Nantucket was one place that he identified. We now know, and I'll kind of you know give away the uh, punchline, archaeologist Helga and Anne Ingstad finally identified a site in northern Newfoundland called Lancy Meadows that is conclusively identified as a Norse settlement. 
there weren't a lot of artifacts, but uh, what they were able to find is things like iron ship's rivets and a spindle whorl and a, a metal pin with a ring head. That has been pretty much nailed shut as a uh, Norse settlement. It may well be Straumfjord. There's been some suggestions that hope might be south of there in New Brunswick in an area around uh, Chaleur Bay, but no direct evidence has yet been found. They thought there might be evidence for a Norse settlement in southern Newfoundland. I want to say the place was called Rose Inlet. That has not panned out, but you know there's still lots of places to look. So I guess we have lost hope, but maybe we'll find hope someday. Uh, well, with global warming, it's entirely possible. Right. Uh, we're also pretty sure that the Greenland Norse did go back to Labrador, which was called Markland, forest land, for timber, uh, which there's not a lot of in Greenland. They found a few scattered artifacts, cloth and things like that, that look like they could be Norse. Those are scattered all over northeast Canada. There's a few native carvings that look like they could have been carvings or portraits in of people in Norse-style clothing. And there was even one coin minted by King Olaf Kyrre, Olaf the Quiet of Norway. He ruled between 1067 and 1093, and one of his coins turned up in a big native site called the Goddard site near a town in Maine called Blue Hill, probably not left by the Vikings or the Norse themselves. Objects like this were traded, and we know that the Goddard site is the remains of a trading town, so people brought things from all over. But it's reasonably sure that the Vinland sagas don't record the only time that Norse speakers from Greenland visited the North American continent. There's even a DNA marker sequence, it's called C1E, that is probably of Native American origin, and it's turned up in thousands of Icelanders. So the scenario is not conclusively settled, but it's consistent with the scenario where at least one Native woman came to Iceland or else had daughters who came to Iceland at least before 1700 and probably several centuries before that. So there are at least some evidence that the Icelanders, Greenlanders, and Native Americans did some interbreeding somewhere down the line. So what you're telling me then is that mm -hmm. the Greenlanders and the Icelanders went to Labrador and did a lot of retrieving. Yeah, they were Labrador retrievers. <laughs> ah. I'm not allowed to make worse puns than I am. You know, some days I'm on a roll. Mm -hmm. So Raffin starts looking for other lines of evidence for the Norse in America. Right. They include uh, Dighton Rock, which is in the bed of the Taunton River at Berkeley, Massachusetts. It was covered with carvings. Of course, Raffin's like, these must be runes. I feel like I'm on Reddit. Mm. Almost everyone agrees these were Native American petroglyphs. And I, I make that joke. I'm, I'm, there's a subreddit called Runes on Reddit. And like every other post there is someone posting some random like something. And what runes are these? And nine times out of ten, it's not. Yeah, anything that's got a lot of 
vertical and diagonal lines is going to look runish. And Dighton Rock does have some carvings like that. I think I've mentioned earlier, there's a guy named Barry Fell who published mostly in the 70s, I think, a lot of claims that I think Phoenicians and Celts uh, visited North America long before Columbus. And he claimed there were lots of Oum inscriptions in North America. And since Oum consists of vertical and diagonal lines, almost any petroglyph site can be turned into an Oum inscription if you squint and probably if you're on drugs. So, yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of claims like this that just don't really hold water. Yeah, I mean, literally, you can just go search runestones in your state. And I guarantee you there's at least three or four claimed runestones that are not runestones. Mm-hmm. There's one on display in Paragould, Arkansas, that's claimed to be a runestone that is not. Really? It was debunked about 20 years ago. But, yeah, when I was a kid, it's still at the Paragould City Hall. Now they've pivoted and think it's some sort of Native American thing, but it's probably just graffiti from early settlers. Right. Well, there's the famous Hevener runestone in eastern Oklahoma. That is runes, but probably not very old ones. Yes. Yeah, that raises the question of what the hell would Vikings be doing or anyone doing in eastern Oklahoma? I'm not sure what people today are doing in eastern Oklahoma. Like, why? Why does it exist? Just just a note, I'm sorry, Bifrostway Kindred. We love you. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll <laughs> leave out Tulsa. I'm thinking of the I-40 corridor through Henrietta and Salisaw. Yeah, casinos. Oh. So Raffin posts a supplement in 1841 talking about this stone tower in Newport, Rhode Island. It's known as the Old Stone Mill. And it looked super different from the typical local buildings. And so he was totally convinced this had to be built by Vikings. Truth is, it was probably just a windmill built in the 1600s by the English. Right. It was built in a somewhat unusual architectural style. It did look a little strange compared to what the English were building just about everywhere else in the 1600s. But there's still some English buildings that look like that and nobody doubts were built in the 1600s. And then there's also the story of the skeleton in armor. In 1831, a skeleton was unearthed accidentally at Fall River, Massachusetts. It had been buried with a brass breastplate and a belt made of brass tubes that were arranged vertically in a long row and then kind of strung together. Like a skirt? Something like that. More Well, more up around the waist and more narrow, so more of a belt than a skirt. Kind of hard to describe, and really hard to describe because the skeleton was lost in a fire in 1843. We don't have it available for study anymore. But it was on display for a while, and some thought it must be a Phoenician sailor. And there were others who suspected it was a Viking warrior, a skeleton in Viking armor. And uh, the truth is, it was almost certainly a Native American from the 16th or 17th century, buried with ornaments made from a brass kettle, which were very popular items of trade at the time between the natives and the Europeans. And unfortunately, like I said, it was lost in 1843. 
after a fire destroyed most of the town. And so we can't examine and find out, do the kind of DNA testing that will come up later when we talk about other people. Right. Apparently there was still some flesh on the bones, which makes you think people would have realized that it can't be a very old burial. And I'm also told that a few of the brass artifacts actually did make it to the National Museum in Copenhagen. I looked in their artifact database and wasn't able to find anything. So, you know, they may be just sitting on a random shelf somewhere, you know, next to the Lost Ark of the Covenant or something like that, for all I know. But yeah, this was probably a Native American who'd gotten a brass kettle in trade. And uh, they did used to make ornaments from things like that. So, yeah, probably not an actual Viking. But that didn't stop one of America's first great poets from writing a poem about the Viking skeleton in armor. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Now, what's going on in American thought at this time in the early 19th century? Well, you have a lot of people who are super into the idea that the best of America, or Anglo-Saxonism, was liberty, democracy, et cetera, et cetera, were very specifically English in origin, and more specifically were founded on the Anglo-Saxon institutions of common law. Right. Things like a trial by jury, the thing, and not medieval feudalism. Right. The Anglo-Saxons had jury trials, they had popular assemblies. Uh, they had this thing called the Witena Yemot, which means uh, gathering of the wise who choose the king. The kingship is not hereditary. It's selected by, you know, wise and good people. And then after the Norman conquest is when you start getting medieval feudalism and absolute rulers and serfs and things like that. But before then, Anglo-Saxon traditions were all about, you know, liberty and self-rule, or at least that's the way people thought of them at the time. Romanticizing the past. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. Well, one romanticizer of the past was none other than Thomas Jefferson, who first encountered Old English in the course of his legal studies. The lawyer that he had apprenticed to had a couple of books on Old English. And he went on to collect books on Old English as well as everything else. He ended up donating his personal library to the nation to replace the original Library of Congress, which had been destroyed when the British burned Washington, D.C. He donated his library to replace it. Most of his books were unfortunately lost in another fire, but the ones that remain are still the core of the Library of Congress, which now is up to something like, I forget, 20 million volumes or something like that. It's amazing the things that they're preserving. They even went out, the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian have even been preserving protest signs from the the civil rights protests recently. Mm -hmm. There's things you can learn from those that you couldn't learn from just reading printed histories. Exactly. Right. And Jefferson was such a fanboy of Old English because he thought it would be, you know, uniquely useful for understanding early English laws, which, you know, as you said, the English common law is the foundation of American law. 
and he put Old English into the original curriculum of the University of Virginia, which he founded and which opened in 1825. And in 1776, he actually proposed a design for the seal of the U.S. The seal, of course, now is that bald eagle with the shield and the eagles clutching an olive branch and 13 arrows and all that. But his original design would have shown Hengist and Horsa, as he put it, the Saxon chiefs from whom we claim the honor of being descended and whose political principles and form of government we have assumed. So the people he wanted on the great seal of the United States were the chiefs who led the first Anglo-Saxon settlement in Britain, Hengist and Horsa. Kind of an odd thing to put on the seal of the U.S., but shows you the way the man was was thinking at the time. And he's such a fanboy. This fanboy starts rubbing off on everybody else. Mm -hmm. So by the 19th century, we have this admiration for Anglo-Saxon culture it goes from being theories about government and how we're like, our principles are descended from them to this idea of Anglo-Saxon biological superiority. If the English are best, I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest. Song by called Flanders and Swan, but go ahead. This mixes in, if you go back and if you listen to our British Romantics episode, you start having this kind of British infatuation with Nordic Viking heritage and the Norse being credited with the best elements of British culture. You have things like Queen Victoria claiming to be a direct descendant of Odin and all kinds of crazy stuff. And you should go listen to the episode and then that will make a lot more sense when you listen to it. Do you know the Odinic right used to... Um include the queen in their prayers as, quote, seed of Odin's royal line? Yes. Mm -hmm. we, we might have even mentioned that. I don't remember if we did. But yeah, you have the British going crazy over the Vikings. You know, this feeds over into the United States. And where this starts striking sparks is that by the late 19th century, this is when immigration is exploding. We had huge numbers of Irish, something like a million came to the United States in the late 1840s. After that, you had waves of Italian immigrants. There were Poles, there were Scandinavians, there were Slavs, there were European Jews. So I can't remember the precise proportions, but a remarkably large number of foreign-born people coming into America, completely transforming the demographics. And many of the immigrants followed a bizarre and frightening and strange religion. That religion was known as Roman Catholicism. You know, the, the English were very proud of the fact that they had broken away from the church in the 16th century. I had to think for a minute. You think as someone who's big of a tutor's historical nut as I am, I can remember, but yeah. So, and these old English descended families aren't too happy about this. I believe these people would be called wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. White Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And they're concerned because there's this very long tradition of anti-Catholicism and 
you know, Catholics are suspect because you just know that they're all taking their orders from the Pope. And, you know, they breed like crazy and they're going to take over and they're going to turn America over to the personal rule of the Pope. And then all of our liberties are going to go down the drain. And, you know, we're all going to have to say Hail Marys and eat crackers and get our knuckles slapped with rulers by psychopathic nuns. And then the rack and ruin. You have a lot of anti-Catholic suspicion, which is not entirely extinct. I mean, I've heard people tell me, you know, with a straight face, they don't think Catholics are Christians. That was a debate that raged in my family for decades after my uncle converted to Catholicism. I know all about it. So you have this very, like in many other situations, the changing demographics of the country causes people to get a little racist. Mm Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, Italians and Irish weren't considered white. All right. I'm a little distracted because I've got a kitten who's decided that uh, pettings are required, and she's attacking my hand if I'm not petting her. (laughs) And actually, she's attacking my hand even if I am. So if I the occasional sobs of pain are because I've got a, um, a, a cat that won't leave me alone. To apologize to our listeners, if you could also hear the explosions in the background, It's also about 9 p.m. on the 30th of June, and they started selling fireworks early this year. So uh, the uh, children in my neighborhood are having a good time outside. Mm -hmm. I think in my case, it's the drunk meth cookers in my neighborhood, but they're setting off fireworks, too. At least I hope they're fireworks. Potato, potato. So let's talk about poets. Okay. So there's this guy named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's a professor of languages at Harvard, Mm -hmm. and he made two very long tours in Europe, learning French, Spanish, Italian, German, and Scandinavian. And while he was on that little trip, he met Thomas Carlyle. Right. We mentioned him in a previous podcast as an English author who was very enthused about the Vikings. Longfellow had a pretty sweet deal. He graduated from Bowdoin College up in Maine. And Bodwin promptly offered to hire him as a professor of modern languages. There was only the minor detail that he didn't actually know any modern languages. And Bodwin said, no problem, we'll send you to Europe and you can learn them. So he spent three years in Europe studying mostly French, Spanish, and Italian. And then several years later, he got his job at Harvard and got Harvard to send him on a second tour of Europe. And that's where he learned German and uh, I believe Swedish. So he was actually pretty well versed in European literature of the time. You know, America is still a very young country, and I guess there aren't a lot of people, you know, there hasn't been a lot of time to develop, you know, traditions of, of, you know, literary and poetical study, but he reads a lot of modern European literature, and he also wrote poetry that was inspired by it. And he was really the first, you know, United States poet to become popular and to have a good reputation on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, there's a monument to him in Westminster Abbey in in London, in Poets Corner, along with Keats and Shelley and all those people. Hey, nice work if you can get it. Well, I don't know if kids these days memorize poetry in school, but I can still remember 
you know, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. That was him. There was a little girl and she had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. That's him. My dad can remember having to read these long poems that he wrote, like The Courtship of Miles Standish or the big one, Hiawatha. This used to be, you know, on the curriculum everywhere you went. I never had to read Hiawatha, but uh, certainly his short poetry was still in the curriculum when I was in grade school in the early 80s. So very influential. Hiawatha was part of the, I believe, 11th grade English curriculum in Arkansas in the 90s. Okay. It was 10th, no, it had been 10th grade. It was 10th grade. It's an interesting poem because Longfellow had actually read a German translation of the Finnish folk epic, the Kalevala, which was put together by a Finnish folklorist named Elias Lundlott from folk poems in uh, a part of Finland called Karelia. It's actually now mostly a part of Russia, but let that pass. And Finnish folk poetry is written in this distinctive meter. It's called trochaic tetrameter. It's um, basically four metrical feet uh, with a stress followed by an unstress. Dum, 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 dum. And in Finnish, it works. And for reasons best known to himself, Longfellow wrote the whole Song of Hiawatha in Kalevala meter. And unfortunately, in English, it comes across as clunky. It's this very monotonous dum bum 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 And it's given rise to the stereotype of what Native American music sounds like. I can remember singing songs that were supposedly, you know, Indian songs when I was in grade school, and they all went, you know, and that's based more on Longfellow's Hiawatha than on anything else. That's literally like the entire premise of the Tomahawk song. Yeah. I mean, that's the entire rhythm. Yeah. The Smothers Brother did this parody of Hiawatha that's very funny making fun of the poem. First, the noble Hiawatha went to kill the bunny rabbit of the skin. He made some mittens, made them with the fur side inside. It goes on like that. But yeah, that's Longfellow. And that gives you some idea of what kind of reach he had. And he was probably the best known of a whole group of poets called the Fireside Poets, so-called because they wrote attractive kind of sentimental verse that would be good for reading to your family as you're all gathered around the far side, the fire side, not the far side, fire side. Now that would be Gary Lawson that did the far side. Right, right. Though that reminds me of the nativity scene that I once saw up in uh, Harrison, Arkansas, where the three wise men were wearing firemen's helmets. And I asked somebody why, and they said, well, don't you know the wise men came from afar? Oh, I should tell our firefighter friend that one. So Longfellow has two things in particular that he wrote that are relevant to this topic. The first being the poem Skeleton in Armor, which was written about the skeleton that we just discussed earlier. 
It's spoken by the spirit of a Viking warrior buried in armor, who had eloped with the king's daughter and sailed away to the New World and built the tower at Newport. So it was basically just a whole lot of uh, speculation put into a point. I was a Viking old, my deeds though manifold, no scald in song has told, no saga taught thee. Take heed that in thy verse thou dost the tale rehearse, else dread a dead man's curse. For this I sought thee. Oh, I won't do the whole thing. Many a wassail bout wore the long winter out, often our midnight shout set the cocks crowing. As we the berserk's tale measured in cups of ale, draining the oaken pail filled to o'erflowing. So yeah, anyway, he runs off with a king's daughter. They uh, sail away to the new world. He builds the tower as a, a home for his lady. Then she dies, and once he's dead, he's tired of life, so he falls on his spear and... Um, the poem ends with his ghost saying, Thus seemed with many scars, bursting these prison bars, up to its native stars my soul ascended. There from the flowing bowl deep drinks the warrior's soul. Skoll to the Northland! Skoll! Thus the tale ended. So, complete fantasy, but fun. Yeah. He also has Tales of a Wayside Inn, which is a collection of poems framed by a story of a group of travelers at an inn who pass the time telling tales. If you were educated in America, you probably are familiar with Paul Revere's ride. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Right, that's one of the tales told by the landlord of the inn. But Longfellow also had a character, a, a Norwegian musician, based on a friend of his, a violinist named Ole Bull, who retells St. Olaf's saga from Heimskringla. And he tells it as a whole series of poems in different meters. And one that gets quoted by heathens today is the opening of it, the first poem, which is sometimes called The Challenge of Thor. I am the god Thor, I am the war god, I am the thunderer. Here in my Northland, my fastness and fortress, reign I forever. Here amid icebergs rule I the nations. This is my hammer, Mjolnir the mighty. Giants and sorcerers cannot withstand it. And it ends with Thor challenging Jesus. Thou art a god too, O Galilean and thus single-handed unto the combat, gauntlet or gospel, here I defy thee. So, you know, nice cracking challenge of Thor, although unfortunately it ends with St. Olaf converting everybody. But yeah, it retells the story of St. Olaf's saga from Heimskringla. Well, you know, that is what Olaf does. Mm-hmm, right. And certainly shows that he was very well read and keeping up with um, literature of uh, of Europe, uh, that he was familiar with this sort of thing. And a friend of his by the name of James Russell Lowell, who's often called another of the far side poets, the fire side poets, a friend of his wrote at about the same time a poem called The Voyage to Vinland. 
a retelling of the Vindland sagas that, of course, everybody knew about because of Raffin's work. And I've got it up here, and I'm holding up up to the microphone so that you can see it. And the part I'll read is from a part where a woman on the voyage named Gudrida speaks a prophecy. I guess she's a spay woman or something like that. And she sees a prophecy of the fate of Vinland. And she tells the Norse people that she's with that it's not their fate to settle there. They don't get it yet. But later on, a new people will come. Men from the Northland, men from the Southland, haste empty-handed. No more than manhood bring they and hands. Pick of all kindreds, king's blood shall theirs be. Shoots of the eldest stock upon Midgard, sons of the poor. Them waits the new land, they shall subdue it, leaving their sons' sons space for the body, space for the soul. Here shall men grow up strong from self-helping. Eyes for the present bring they as eagles, blind to the past. They shall make over creed, law, and custom, driving men, dochti, builders of empire, builders of men. So Lowell's having his spay woman speak a prophecy of the later European discovery of America, the free people who will emigrate there, very poor, bringing nothing with them except for grim determination to conquer and subdue the land and gain great wealth through hard work. So he's using this to present his vision of how Americans would like to see themselves, you know, free people who work hard and know the values of an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and they don't take nothing from nobody, no siree, bubba. Some things never change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're using Vikings as this kind of lens to view a very idealized portrait of what they think America should be, a land of opportunity where anybody can be wealthy as long as you're just willing to work for it, where even the poor people can get land free for the taking. That's after we kill off the natives, but let's not go there. And, you know, live the true American dream if you're just willing to work hard and be proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the Vikings who sailed the Atlantic Sea. All right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Sorry about that. I should not be inflicting Lee Greenwood on you. Yeah, we have our limits. I think that was it. Right. But that's one of the sources of American enthusiasm for the Vikings. It's basically Raffin's story, but getting transmitted through poetry and very popular poetry at the time. This is the kind of thing that everybody read. Longfellow would have been on, you know, if you had books at all, one was probably going to be Longfellow. Very popular stuff. This would be the popular media of the time. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So... We have Lowell, and then we get into a professor at Harvard named Even Horsforth. Right. So cool thing, he was a chemist, one of the very first chemists in the U.S. trained in practical applications. He invented baking powder. Yeah. He'd studied with probably the founder of applied chemistry, a German scientist named Justus Liebig, 
Liebig, by the way, made a lot of foundational discoveries in nutrition. He's the guy who discovered that you need a mix of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats in your diet. Would take a while for them to figure out vitamins, but he made discoveries like that. He made discoveries in agriculture, discovered that you need to give plants nitrogen and phosphorus. And Aben Horsford is one of his students, comes back to teach chemistry at Harvard, and then goes into private business while still a professor, and invented the first shelf-stable baking powder. You can actually buy his baking powder to this day. It's sold under the brand name Rumford, which was named after another early American chemist, by the way, who lived in Britain and is known as Count Rumford. They sell it in these little cans that are kind of uh, have this red metallic uh, finish on them. Uh, you can buy it today, and it made him stupidly wealthy. And the thing is, when you earn huge amounts of money, more than you know what to do with, it usually doesn't take long before some use for it whispers in your ear, and you get this great idea that you start spending lots of money on. It's kind of easy to get obsessed with off-the-shelf ideas if you have so much money that it doesn't matter anymore. There's an entire reality show called The Lottery Ruined My Life that, that sums up this entire idea. Okay. Yeah, so Horsford has definitely won, won the life lottery, and he's got more cash than he knows what to do with, and he picks up Antiquitates Americani, Raffin's book. Yes. And he becomes obsessed with the idea that the Vikings had settled North America and created this empire. Bless his heart. Mm -hmm. Right. This empire spans all of New England. Their capital city was called Norumbega. That is actually an early place name recorded in the local Algonquin languages. But Horsford concluded that Norumbega must just be the Native American attempt to pronounce Norway. And the capital city was located in Watertown, Massachusetts. The Norse settlers had been industrious little beavers, much like Americans like to see themselves. They were tamers of nature. They worked hard, you know, an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. I won't sing Lee Greenwood again, but it was kind of like that. And they dug a bunch of canals, they built dams, they fished and they farmed, and they exported maple wood, uh, which he'd got the idea was a precious export good that the uh, Norse settlers in America made a lot of money trading back to Europe. So what you're saying is they worked hard for the money? So hard for it, honey. Uh, they work hard for the money. Mm -hmm. So you better build them a giant statue? Are we having a contest to see who can quote the most annoying song lyrics at each other? <laughs> yes, I think we are, accidentally. <laughs> okay. I was trying to give you a nice segue into what he did in uh, in uh, Massachusetts. Okay. Well, if we're if we're quoting annoying song lyrics... You know, we could say that, you know, the Norse folk came to America and um, they built this city. They built this city of rock and stone. Oh, that's a good one. That one's good. Yeah, yeah. They built this city and they built houses 
And Horsford discovered what he was absolutely convinced was the very site of Leif Erikson's house in the New World. By strange coincidence, it happens to be three blocks away from his own house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, just across the Charles River from Boston. And he spent his money to put plaques up everywhere he thought had been a Viking site. And he put up a plaque marking the location of Leif Erikson's house. It's now on the grounds of Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And let me see, when they built a bridge across the Charles River, they named it after Longfellow. It's still there. And they decorated it with the prows of Viking ships. Kind of a tribute paid there to Longfellow's infatuation with the Vikings. And Longfellow actually wanted to put up a statue of Leif Erikson. And the first attempt didn't work out. But in 1887, Horsford put up the money and commissioned a statue of Leif Erikson that's still there. Unfortunately, kind of close to a freeway overpass now. I got to see it a few years ago. Looks more Greek than Viking. Leif Erikson is kind of slim and doesn't have a beard and is wearing this armor that looks more like a Wagnerian Valkyrie than anything else. Uh, But it's got its name in runes on the plinth. And um, yeah, it's still there on, on Commonwealth Avenue. That's precious. Mm-hmm. And it amuses me that it was right there, you know, right next door to his house. It's the darndest thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing how that coincidence pays off. Unfortunately, we've got to talk about some background. Mm-hmm. And it's not great background. So we mentioned earlier, immigration at this point is exploding, including some traditionally Catholic groups such as the Irish, the Italians, and the Poles. And there's a whole lot of anti-Catholic prejudice that dates all the way back to the Reformation, which is another episode we've done you can listen to. Mm-hmm. So you have three different kind of homemaking myths, which different immigrant groups have asserted as their kind of place at the table. You have the blood sacrifice myth, or the idea an immigrant group has fought bravely and died for the U.S. You have the foundation myth. An immigrant group was first or among the first to colonize the U.S. And then you have the ideological foundation myths, and immigrant groups' ideals have always been a part of the national ideology of the U.S. Right. Yeah, if you look at the Irish, for example, you know, the Irish started coming over in the late 1840s, and you know, settled in mostly the cities of the Northeast. And they can point to the blood sacrifice myth. And I don't mean myth is falsehood. I mean, it's historically true, but myth in the sense of a story that gives life meaning and gives your, your personal story greater significance. They, uh, they can point to things like, you know, the fighting 69th, one of the regiments in the Irish Brigade in the Civil War, which had one of the highest casualty rates of any Union unit in the Civil War. A lot of Irish immigrants died in the Civil War fighting for the Union and fighting for freedom. And, you know, Irish could point to that and say, see, we belong here. You know, we died. We spilled our blood to, you know, support American ideals for a much Later example, 
Japanese Americans can point to, I think it's the 441st Regiment in World War II, one of the most decorated regiments and saw some of the heaviest fighting and had some very high casualty rates in the Second World War, made up entirely of Japanese Americans. And at the very time that Japanese Americans were in internment camps, their sons were serving in the U.S. Army and serving with great distinction. A senator you might remember from a few years ago, Daniel Inouye, actually fought in uh, the 441st. And so the Japanese Americans could now say, you know, we have our own war heroes and people who, you know, fought and killed and died in order to protect freedom. And then foundation myths, you can talk about how immigrant groups were among the first to colonize the U.S. You know, so people of English descent uh, have always felt that, you know, we were here first. So, you know, we belong here. And then, of course, Native Americans can listen to that and kind of shake their heads and sigh. Spoiler alert, they weren't. Right. I know that and you know that. And then ideological foundation myths are myths that the ideals of a particular group have always been part of the United States' national framework, that even if they weren't personally here, their spirit was. So that's three different ways in which immigrant groups have tried to assert that, hey, we belong. And this starts coming into play around about 1892, which is the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of actually it was some islands in the Caribbean, not the mainland, but we'll gloss over that and just say that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue as I learned in first grade music class. I'm sure you did too. Oh, yeah. And this was kind of important because you've had the Italians that have been celebrating this holiday since 1866 in New York and since 1868 in San Francisco. And it was the first National Columbus Day was proclaimed as a way to kind of counter an event in 1892 where 11 Italian immigrants were lynched, but it was meant to be just like a one-time deal, like a, oops, are bad, have a holiday. I hate to sound so flippant, but it just sounds kind of like that's what it was. It kind of reminds me of things that are going on currently, but yes, I digress. The Italian-American community keeps pushing for this. Colorado makes it a state holiday in 1907, but it doesn't actually become like a national holiday until 1934. And it doesn't become a federal holiday until 1968. And if you want to share some very interesting fact about Columbus Day, Ben. Yeah, it's only one of two federal holidays that are dedicated to a single person. The other one being Martin Luther King Jr. And I was in grad school in Berkeley in 1992, which was when the pushback against Columbus Day began. And it was proclaimed Indigenous Peoples Day. And of course, now there's several cities and municipalities that have stopped celebrating Columbus Day as word has gotten around that Columbus was a genocidal, cruel maniac, even by the standards of the time. Like the Spanish government said, hey, whoa, dude, that's pretty extreme. 
And, you know, this being Spain of the time of the Inquisition, you've really got to be extreme to get the Spanish government to say, hey, man, step back here. But yeah, he enslaved the natives, killed many of them. He and his men took them as sex slaves and cut off their hands if they didn't bring gold. And we've seen some statues of Columbus getting toppled of late because he's suddenly become a very contentious figure as people realize what his actual record was. He wasn't just a sailor and an explorer. He was extremely cruel in his governorship of um, of his realm in the New World. But that's all in the future. In 1893, this huge World's Fair called the World's Columbian Exposition is held in Chicago to commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery. And this was a really big deal. One thing, it was, well, it was lit up. So it was, you know, many Americans' first exposure to, like, mass displays of electric lighting. There were exhibits from all over the world. There was actually a belly dancer uh, from the Middle East, and uh, they called her Little Egypt. And she gave these demonstrations of belly dancing that were very popular. And unfortunately, when she got there, she didn't bring any music, and nobody quite knew what sort of music to play. So the uh, impresario who brought her here quickly improvised a piece of music that he thought would be suitable for belly dancing. And it goes, so yeah, that's how the song was written that I knew as a kid as, you know, there's a place in France where the naked ladies dance. Uh, That's where that comes from. The world's Columbian exposition. True story. Yeah. So in 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago as commemorating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery. It's a big deal. You have the debut of the Ferris wheel, motion pictures, moving sidewalks, important things like juicy fruit gum and PBR, absolute ribbon, were introduced at the fair. And so was the very first Parliament of World Religions. And Norway set a replica of the Gokstad ship which had sailed across the Atlantic for the occasion, which is kind of cool. And like I said, this was important. And you had Italian-Americans who were pushing for this because they saw Columbus as a hero, but also it was a way for Italian-Americans to integrate themselves into American history and to show that they had been here since the beginning. But With all this, there's still a pretty hardcore anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and anti-Italian sentiment that provoked a backlash. And anti-Catholic writers picked up on Leif Erikson as being the real discoverer of America, even though his actual voyages were, you know, pretty much Greenland and there wasn't a huge actual trace of it. Right. The actual Vinland settlements only lasted a couple of years, and then the Norse packed up and left, in some accounts, basically realizing that, holy crap, we're 300 miles away from Greenland, and there seemed to be an awful lot of natives around, and if they decide they really don't like us, they're going to slaughter us all. Maybe it's not such a great idea to settle here after all. Yeah, they don't really leave a permanent trace in North America, we didn't even find the remains of their settlements until the 1960s. 
But you have this idea that Leif Erikson is the the real founding father of America because he got here first and somehow his ideals are the true American ideals, not Columbus. Columbus is not really our daddy because Columbus was a foul Catholic in the service of the predatory Pope who wanted to subjugate the entire world to his rule. <laughs> right. Thank you, Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. So we have a lawyer and diplomat named Aaron Goodrich who lays it down with a history of the character and achievements of the so-called Christopher Columbus, which has got to be one of the most passive-aggressive titles I've ever heard in 1874. Right. And he actually reviews claims of a lot of different people, Phoenicians and the Welsh and people like that, to have visited North America before Columbus did. And uh, he includes an account of the Norse settlement. And he writes, I won't quote all of this because he does tend to ramble, but he says, while the greater part of Europe was plunged in the intellectual darkness which pervaded the Middle Ages, while the monk in his cloister toiled laboriously during a lifetime to perpetuate some one work of saintly or classic lore, and the masses were ignorant, superstitious, the slaves of feudal lords and barons scarcely less ignorant than themselves, <gasps> a people flourished in the extreme north with whom enterprise and freedom were neither dead nor stagnant, who possessed scientific knowledge and applied the same to practical purposes, a people simple, fearless, and energetic with whom chieftains were the fathers and protectors of their followers sharing their perils and respecting their rights. A pagan people indeed, worshippers of Odin and Thor, believers in the joy of Valhalla, yet doers of deeds so noble as to be worthy of the most enlightened Christian. Such were the Northmen. And he goes on, talks about how they came to the New World for motives different from those of Columbus. They did not come in search of gold or slaves, but to gather by industry the natural products of the land, nor did they seek by false representations to inveigle others into bearing all the burdens. They were the worthy pioneers of European settlement on our shores, a hardy race counting on their own labor to develop the natural resources of the lands they discovered. So they're not there because they're greedy for gold. They're not going to trade slaves, which if you know actual Viking history is downright funny. They're there to, you know, work hard and, you know, win wealth by their labor of their own hands through hard work and an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. And I'm proud to be a Viking because I sail the Atlantic Sea. And I've landed in America to win some wealth for me. Sorry, I, I can't seem to get Lee Greenwood off the brain. I, I feel like I should apologize. Sorry about that. Yeah, we still don't have any evidence that the Norse actually made it to what's now United States territory. I mean, it's possible they found remains of butternuts at uh, the site in Newfoundland, and butternuts don't grow that far north, so they must have sailed south and brought back, well, if nothing else, butternuts. 
but we still don't have conclusive evidence that they reached the United States. So yeah, a song by the Guess Who. All right. So we have a couple more scholars we'll get to, and then we will take a break for this episode because we have a lot more to cover. So uh, we have Marie Brown, Mm -hmm. who in 1892 published The Icelandic Discoveries of America, or Honor to Whom Honor is Due, which was basically just a huge rant up against the Catholic Church as the epitome of tyranny and Catholic immigrants as traitors. And then, of course, the idea that the Norse were the true spiritual ancestors of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Columbus is a slave trader. He's a fraud. She claims that he only got his knowledge of the how to sail to the New World from sneaking a peek at an Icelandic manuscript. And Columbus got the Pope to assign all of the New World to Spain. And if... You know, the United States recognized Columbus as the discoverer of America. It would basically be be saying that the Pope was right and submitting to rule of the Pope. She seems to have thought that the Pope was just chomping at the bit uh, to to take over America and, you know, slap the knuckles of free living Americans everywhere with uh, rulers or something. And as she says, you know. The Norsemen were brave, free, high-minded men, men of a race who had planted the seeds of liberty in many a state of Europe, and who did it, in this case unwittingly, from the mere force of their splendid nationality. So just by being themselves and being awesome and, you know, wielding that Norse force, the Norsemen are the true ancestors of America because they're all about liberty and freedom and hard work, and Lee Greenwood, and all of that. And so the constant theme is that Americans at this time are kind of using the Norse as a mirror to reflect an ideal image of themselves as, you know, hardworking immigrants who came here with nothing and tamed the land and made this country great and insert Lee Greenwood here. Yeah. And then you also have Rasmus B. Anderson, who was the first professor of Scandinavian studies at the University of Wisconsin, who publishes America Not Discovered by Columbus in 1874, who kind of reintroduces the Vinland sagas to the general public. And he was a very much a tireless advocate for the Scandinavians, who began flocking to the Midwest between the 1820s and the 1920s, don't you know? Over 1.1 million Swedes and nearly 700,000 Norwegian immigrants came over that way. And being fair-skinned and mostly Protestants, maybe uh, they got a little bit easier time than some other people blending in. But still, there was some prejudice. Mm -hmm. Enter a discovery known as the Kensington Runestone. And what is the Kensington Runestone? You got to tune in next episode to find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, afraid so. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, we're going to leave you hanging there. So, Ben, what have we learned this week? Well, we've learned that there has long been a tendency for Americans to try to see themselves in this idealized, heroic picture of the Vikings. And it's an attitude that you can see carried on to this day. Uh, in particular, I think in some of the writings of you know early folkish figures like Steve McNallan, 
who also started with this very idealized view of the Vikings and has always definitely seen you know these idealized Norse virtues as being part of America even you know going back a very long time ago if you remember we did a show on this if you remember that Native American skeleton that McNallan claimed to be an uh, an ancestor. Yes. So, and that is covered in our two-part series on Steve McNallan. Mm-hmm. So, one of the great things, if you've been a long-time listener, you know all these things already. Exactly. But we will resume talking about the Kensington Runestone, along with other Viking mania, as I've dubbed this now, things on our next episode. However, if between now and then you're like, hey, I want to talk to these people, you can find us on Dislike for Heathen History. We're on Facebook, Twitter, patreon.com forward slash heathen history if you want to support us. Or what's our website, Ben? I don't know. What is our website? Let me guess. Is it something like heathenhistory.com? Yes. And what do we have on our website? I'm looking at it now. We've got all of our latest episodes. Uh, We've got links to our Twitter account. We've got links to our Patreon account so that you can support us if you want to, help pay the expenses to do the audio production of this podcast, and just generally show yourself to be a truly awesome guy. Most importantly, our show notes and our sources. Ah, yes, because we always put our notes up. We tell you where we get all of the things that we say, and... Yeah, you get all of our background research. We, as we said, we read the horrible things so you don't have to. Exactly. And for $10 a month, you can even gain access to our exclusive Facebook group where we'll actually answer personal questions from you. And if you go crazy and do more than that, you get a free T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Go crazy. Oh, yeah. Free T-shirt. Nothing to sneeze at. No. So we will be back with you next episode with the second part of Viking Mania in America. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Watch the Alien